Some new documents released and obtained by the Globe and Mail, reporters Robert Fife and Stephen Chase, show that Global Affairs objected to Canadian military decisions, and that was a decision to cancel training with the China's People's Liberation Army. So for more on this, we are joined now by columnist Rob Fife with the Globe and Mail. Thanks so much for being with us. Happy to do so. Uh, can you talk a bit about this? Uh, a lot of moving parts here, but uh, your story in the Globe and Mail uh, talks about the Department of Global Affairs pushing back uh, against a decision last year. Uh, this was about interactions with China's People's Liberation Army. What are we talking about here? Uh, there was a plan, believe it or not, that uh, the People's Liberation Army was were going to participate in winter training exercises with the Canadian forces. General uh, Vance, who's the chief of the defense staff, said, uh, I don't know, we're not going to do this, we're going to cancel this. This came particularly because there was pressure from the United States and Australia, uh, but particularly from the United States, who were very concerned that why would we be showing the Chinese how to fight in winter conditions? Uh, it's They're not our... They're not our allies. And so uh, he canceled it, and this caused great consternation within uh, the pinstripes at uh, Fort Pearson, which is the Foreign Affairs Department in Ottawa, and they were all upset that um, this could be uh, interpreted by the Chinese as retaliation uh, for uh, the uh, their arrest of two Canadians, or hostage taking two Canadians, and uh, and that the Chinese would be offended by this, and uh, there was a, the, the whole all these secret and there, all these documents are marked secret. But it just goes to show you the extent that foreign affairs was really concerned about not wanting to upset the Chinese over the Meng Wanzhou case. Uh, they were very more, much more thinking, much more concerned about uh, Miss Meng, who, as you know, was living in Vancouver in a mansion, mm-hmm. and less concerned about the conditions of Michael Spavo and Michael Kovic, who are in Chinese prisons uh, where the lights are on 24 hours a day and uh, where they are not even allowed any contact with uh, any, anyone from the outside. So it's, a, it's quite a revelation in the sense that there seems to be a real disconnect inside the higher levels of the government about how we should approach China. General Vance is saying, no, we're not going to do winter training exercises with the PLA, and the foreign affairs officials uh, are saying, oh, no, we have to do this because we don't want to upset the Chinese. And and doesn't it seem that even if we took out Meng Wanzhou and took out the two Michaels and we're only talking about doing training exercises with uh, China's People's Liberation Army, uh, the question of why we would share secrets or why we would share tips on how to fight to, in winter conditions, uh, that seems a little absurd on its own, even without uh, all uh, without the hostage taking involved. You're, you're absolutely right. I mean... There are been ongoing things that have been going on with China, including having inviting Chinese uh, military officers to our peacekeeping, peacekeeping missions. Maybe that I can sort of see as being understandable. But, uh, you know, we, we have been involved with them. Um, I don't know how long this has been going on, certainly for the last few years. Um, and it's just, it's bizarre. It's, we wouldn't do this with the Russians. Um, we were certainly doing with our allies, the United States, Great Britain, the Germans. But with the Chinese, I mean, China is a growing economic and military power, and it is definitely at odds with the Western liberal democracy. So why would we be inviting them, uh, a fox into the henhouse, so to speak, uh, is beyond disbelief. I mean, some would look at this, I think, and read the piece that uh, you have in the Globe and Mail, you and Stephen Chase did, saying this this almost seems like more of an opportunity where you would come right out and say, no, we're not doing this because you're holding our citizens, uh, not try and, and not ruffle feathers. Well, I, I agree with you, but I mean, these emails that we have and they're all marked secret for Canadian eyes only, it's, it's quite remarkable that all this effort is going in to try to tell the our top general that you shouldn't be doing this kind of stuff. 
because we don't want to offend the Chinese. And this is, hey, I mean, it's very clear on the documents the Americans are very, very concerned that Canada would be participating with the PLA on any kind of military exercise, but there's some that they're very concerned about because uh, I think it's the winter uh, exercises, but you don't want to transfer any kind of information or technology to uh, China because, you know, who knows, we, they could be using it against us. Um, but that, that wasn't the thinking of foreign affairs. The thinking was that they could think of this as retaliation um, because they arrested two of our Canadians, and we don't want them to think that. And uh, I'm just watching question for and uh, Aaron O'Toole, a conservative leader, another conservative MP, so you know, asking the government about these very questions, and they have not responded to a single question on this. They have all they've done is deflect by uh, remarking that, and this is a very sad day. That today is the day that. Both Michael Sparvar and Michael Kovac were arrested and have been now in prison for, I think, 730 days, and the conditions are terrible. Uh, but they never answered the question. They just simply, this is not a day for politics. It's a day to talk about um, the, the plight of these two men. So they, they don't want to answer this question. Uh, no, it's pretty clear uh, looking at those exchanges uh, for sure. It also really, uh, what I took from the piece was thankfully uh, th- these documents, uh, I know there was a freedom of action, uh, freedom of access uh, request, uh, but also people talking uh, who uh, were talking uh, anonymously. Uh, but it really makes you appreciate, I think, uh, General Jonathan Vance and, and the, the way that the uh, military stood up to global affairs. I agree with you on that. Um, General Vance um, has been probably more of a hawk on this than other members of the, of the government. Um, and uh, I will note that he had wanted to Canada's support uh, to uh, to run for a negative secretary general, and the government refused to give him that. He is going to retire uh, very soon. Uh, and by the way, all of these documents the exchanges that we reported on would never have come to light, uh, except there was a screw-up at Foreign foreign Affairs. They meant to blacken out everything, but the way they they blackened it out, uh, they didn't do a proper job on it, and you could actually read it. Otherwise, we would never even have an idea that this was going on. Wow. Well, it's uh, fascinating uh, reporting. And thanks so much, uh, Rob Fife. Again, I know you're uh, very busy today. So thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. But thanks again for this. You're welcome. Bye. That is Rob Fife, a a columnist with The Globe and Mail. And I'm still just uh, shaking my head, as he mentioned at the end of that interview, all because of the information, which is pretty important information. All of that uh, come to light because of a mistake when it came to redacting parts of the documents that were being released. We're going to take a bit of time right now looking at healthcare wait times in this country, how BC compares to some other provinces. And joining me on the line is Bacchus Barua, Associate Director for the Centre of Health Policy Studies at the Fraser Institute. Bacchus, great to have you back on the show. Good afternoon, and thank you so much for having me on the show again. Before we get into the wait times and what you have found this year, can you run through again how you get these numbers and how you get the information to put this together to get the times? Sure, Jill. Um, We've been doing this study now for almost three decades, um, and essentially what we do is we contact um, every physician who we can in 12 different specialties. Um, these are non-emergency specialties, but they're things like ophthalmology, otolaryngology, as well as things like neurosurgery and radiation oncology. Um, and we send the surveys out. Uh, we collect the responses via letter mail, via faxes, and via telephones. Um, and this year, we had a response rate of 11%, but because we send it to the population of physicians, that's about uh, 1,200 responses that we received this year. All right. And pretty is it pretty uh, straight across the board? Do you get more back from certain provinces? Um, yeah, there are there are some variations between the provinces. Um, this is a different year, uh, but in general, you know, for example, in BC, we have a response rate of about 21%. Um, that's about 300 surveys. 
Um, we also have a similar response rate in, for example, New Brunswick, which is about 21%, but over there, that's 49 surveys, just because of, you know, how many physicians are actually there in the province. Uh, the only uh, province where there is definitely some note for caution this year is Quebec, which has a response rate of 4%. Uh, but again, when we actually look at the data year to year, and because of the number of surveys we receive, 124 in Quebec, uh, we haven't noticed any major um, things that would concern us at the outset. So what do the surveys tell us this year? Um, unfortunately, Jill, um, the, the surveys have revealed that Canadians are waiting longer than ever, uh, longer than ever in the record of our survey, which has been conducted since 1993. Um, on average, the wait time between getting a referral from a family physician, going to see a specialist, to actually getting treatment is 22.6 weeks in Canada. Um, and when we contrast that with 1993, when we first um, calculated the national estimate, that was only 9.3 weeks. Um, so steady deterioration in wait times across the years. And to get that number, so do you ask the physicians and specialists the, the simple number of the wait time, or do you get into the details of why? Um, this particular survey um, looked simply asked physicians how long it takes to um, get a routine consultation with them. Then the second uh, part of the survey is actually um, asking them how long from that time would it take to actually um, get treat- get that particular treatment. Um, till about 2014, we used to also ask for uh, the reasons why there was a change in, in that particular uh, wait time. Uh, but that has since been abandoned in order to just have a shorter survey. It used to be a two-page, so now it's a one-page, but I'm getting into the technical details now. <laughs> sure. Um, but So a bit alarming then, or, or not great news, if we take a look at the median wait time of, of getting longer. Um, do, can we look at what the reasons might be then as far as, because it's not just, like you've said, it's not just how long it takes you to have your surgery. It's how long it takes to get to your initial physician, how long then it takes to get a referral and to get to see a specialist in some cases. Absolutely. And, you know, it's been a very long journey to actually um, understand that there are many different components to these wait times. For a long time, um, a lot of government websites, when they started to actually measure wait times as well, were only really focusing on that second wait between specialist to treatment. But what was going on looked at was that first wait to actually see a specialist in the first case, which sometimes can be as much as 50% of the actual wait that um, that patients face. Um, in terms of what's actually driving the wait times, you know, uh, it, it goes without saying that, of course, these numbers will have been impacted by the current pandemic. There have been cancellations across the provinces earlier on this year. Um, and as, as I mentioned before, they have also um, resulted in a reduced response rate. However, when we just look one year prior to this year, we find that the wait time was 20.9 weeks, which is you know just a little bit shorter than, than what we recorded this year. was really telling us that this is a systemic problem, which has resulted because we've tried everything except actually looking at differences in policy. Uh, so why do you think there's such a difference then when you look at these numbers and see that Ontario records the shortest wait times? I think it's 17.4 weeks, although it's still up a bit from 2019 mm-hmm. uh, compared to where you you found through this survey that Prince Edward Island has the longest. You know, again, in this particular study, we haven't looked at um, the reasons that are driving the differences amongst the provinces. In general, what we've noticed is that um, over the years, Ontario and Quebec have traditionally had shorter wait times than the rest of the country and pulled the national wait time down. Uh, British Columbia, in fact, used to factor amongst that as well, um, I would say till about the mid-2000s, but it's since been slipping. Um, right now, it's about rank five um, with a wait time of 26.6 weeks, which is about the same as it was when it was at its highest um, in 2017. Um, in the Atlantic provinces, of course, there are far more challenges um, in provinces like um, Prince Edward Island. Uh, there might be situations where there's only one or no physician, and that actually drives the wait time off there. Um, the one province where we can actually see very direct um, uh, results of uh, of policy changes was actually Saskatchewan, um, where in you know between about 2008 to 2014 they had a Saskatchewan Surgical Initiative, which um, pooled patients into um, a pooled referral. Um, so essentially, you go into a centralized process. You get connected with um, the physician that has the shortest wait time, rather than going from one particular GP to one particular specialist through a referral process. And they also contracted service out to third-party private clinics within the public system, um, which resulted in a significant reduction in their wait times from some of the longest waits in 2006 or 7, which was about 28 weeks, um, to the shortest wait in 2014. Since then, they've had some trouble um, uh, keeping that down because these are band-aid solutions within the Canada Health Act. Um, but that's the only province where we've seen a direct result of policy 
um, with the wait times. Unfortunately, the rest needs needs more analysis. Uh, but don't we do that here in BC as well, as far as contracting out, uh, whether it's a cataract surgery, knee surgeries, if you're hurt on, on the job, WorkSafe BC will send you uh, to a clinic uh, to avoid the lineup. But would our numbers show the impact of that as well? Um, it's difficult to tell, more difficult to tell in BC because um, at least at least I haven't done research that's looking at when those policies started and then being able to connect it with the wait times. And I think it would be a wonderful idea for research and I hope that somebody, somebody gets around to doing that. Um, but Saskatchewan was the one where we could very clearly see the beginning of that program um, and the impact of the wait times in the following two or three years. What about specific surgeries? When we're talking about surgery wait times, or, sorry, wait times in a general sense, what about if we're talking about something though like a cataract surgery or a cancer surgery? Um, there are significant variations um, between the different specialties, um, absolutely. <clears throat> we see the longest wait times for specialties like um, ophthalmology and orthopedic surgery, where the wait times on average are about um, 34 weeks. Uh, and much shorter wait times, as, as you correctly pointed out, for things like radiation and medical oncology, where the wait times are about four weeks. <clears throat> and essentially what we're, I, I would say, finding from that data is that Canada does have a system where we are correctly prioritizing people. Um, people who essentially are in crisis mode for emergencies are getting in and seeing treatment. But the problem is what is actually happening to everyone else. And I think for far too long, everyone else has been relegated to a very long wait time Um, which we can see very clearly from this data. All right, uh, Bacchus, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much for joining us and talking more about this. My pleasure. Always a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you so much. All right, that is Bacchus Barua, Associate Director at the Centre for Health Policy Studies with the Fraser Institute. Well, we know yesterday we got some more details on how vaccine will be rolled out in this province. The first vaccine, the Pfizer one, which has been given Health Canada approval, has some complications. The biggest one being that it has to be stored at minus 70. That means it can't be driven around. It can't be taken to various locations. And that causes a bit of a problem when we're dealing with people who might have mobility issues but are close to the top of the list when it comes to getting vaccine. There is also the question of rapid testing, and there have been many calls for rapid testing in places such as long-term care. Well, let's bring in Terry Lake, the CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. Terry, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me, Jill. Uh, What's your response, first of all, to the vaccine rollout plan and how people living in long-term care fit into that plan? Well, uh, for families with loved ones in long-term care, this, uh, this is certainly great news. People have been separated for the greater part of a year, and so to have a light at the end of the tunnel is really uplifting. Uh, there are some concerns, however, of course, because, as you mentioned, with the logistics that were explained yesterday, um, it looks like people have to go to the vaccine rather than the vaccine to the people, which means the actual residents of long-term care Uh, may not get vaccinated uh, as quickly as we had hoped. And, you know, there uh, are some uh, varying opinions on this, Jill, and so we'll be bringing this up with the ministry, in that um, the CEO of BioNTech, the partner of Pfizer, says that, in fact, you can move that vaccine around more than we've been led to believe with the initial rollout here in B.C. So we certainly want to explore that option to make sure that it becomes easy for staff and for residents to get vaccinated as soon as possible. And I guess as it brings some comfort to the idea that long-term care workers and a lot of the the, the essential and the most vulnerable uh, frontline healthcare workers will also be close to the top of that list to get vaccinated? Absolutely. Uh, the best way to protect seniors in care is to make sure those who are caring for them are protected from uh, from the from the virus and from bringing the virus into uh, care because that's been you know the main way that its uh, outbreaks have occurred and, and so this as i said is is absolutely uh, fabulous news uh, it'll take some time to get all uh, workers and and residents vaccinated so families will have to wait a little longer to have you know the the kind of connection with their loved one that that they've missed for so long uh, but at least we know it's coming And what about the issue of rapid tests? And certainly there are different opinions. Uh, There's different science being put forward in different countries on the accuracy and how effective rapid tests are. Has there been any change on, I know you've been calling for this and others have been calling to bring these tests into long-term care? 
Well, we are happy to see uh, at least a pilot program being uh, started at, at Holy Family in Vancouver uh, Coastal uh, through Providence Healthcare and then hopefully into Fraser Health. And we understand that Interior Health has uh, a plan to start some rapid testing. I think, Jill, when we look back on how we managed uh, the pandemic in long-term care, this will be one of the, the real gaps and, and um, mistakes that we've made in not implementing rapid testing uh, to uh, better screen workers uh, in long-term care so that we could have avoided some outbreaks and and perhaps had safer and more timely visits with family. Uh, So with the vaccine coming, this is becoming less of an issue, but I still think it's worthwhile uh, to institute rapid testing as much as possible. Uh, It is not a replacement for the current screening that that goes on now, and certainly people who work in long-term care won't use it as a reason not to use uh, their personal protective equipment properly. It's just one more layer that I think that will protect seniors in care. Uh, one of the arguments against it has been the sheer number of tests that would be needed and the number of workers that would then be testing every day. Do you think, given the scope of, of the, the long-term care facilities you're associated with, would it be possible to do an effective program with rapid testing for everybody? Well, it doesn't have to be done every day. Uh, you know, the, the pilot program that uh, is being run at, at Holy Family, I believe they're looking at two or three times a week. And so if you were to uh, to uh, test staff two or three times a week, I think it could be done. You know, you could have a third of the staff being done every day. And, you know, if we had been trying this out in August, September, uh, we'd have it down. We'd have the workflow down. We'd have the results back. We'd know how effective, how easy uh, it is to do. It certainly has worked in the film industry, it appears, and so um, it would have been nice to to have that to to, uh, to implement in long term care as well. Uh, you mentioned as well the good news about the the vaccine, how it's going to be rolled out. We heard yesterday also uh, with more vaccines coming on, uh, there is hope that uh, the other ones perhaps won't be as fragile as the Pfizer. Uh, but we're looking now at a Christmas, a holiday season that is going to look very different for everybody. What does that mean for people who are in long term care? And 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 to put it bluntly, this might be their last Christmas. Absolutely, Jill. About 25% of people in long-term care, just by the very nature of the complexity of their illness and their advanced age, 25% of people will pass away in any given year. So you can imagine that this will be the last Christmas for many residents of long-term care. Uh, And after having been nine or ten months separated from their loved ones, uh, it's a real shame that they, they won't be united at Christmas. But perhaps we can start the early part of 2021 Uh, by having a hug uh, with our family members that are in care. And I think a lot of people just can't wait for that to happen. How are things going as far as uh, whenever we talk about this, we we talk about the fact that there are still outbreaks in long-term care facilities. The virus is still getting in. Uh, It is still spreading. Uh, We're still seeing uh, many days, if not all in the past few days, uh, the deaths in this province have been in the double digits. Those are deaths that are in long-term care facilities. Uh, How are we doing as far as fighting the virus in those environments? Well, it's it's taxing. Uh, people working in long-term care, the true heroes uh, at the front line, are exhausted, and many of them are sick and uh, off work. Uh, you know, we have some homes that are on their third outbreak, and it's a direct correlation to the prevalence of the virus in the community. So what we do as a society, as a community, impacts the uh, the risk to people in long-term care. And so as we've seen the caseload go up in Fraser Health, uh, particularly, but also Vancouver Coastal. We've seen increased outbreaks. Uh, I think we have over 57 in long-term care homes at the moment. So you can imagine how tired people are, not just on the front lines, but you know, people working in, in management, in food service, in, in cleaning staff. Uh, they haven't had any time off, and um, you know, we're hoping that soon they'll, they'll get a bit of relief with the vaccine uh, coming on stream. Uh, and you mentioned the pilot project with rapid testing. Do you anticipate, though, I mean, a pilot project only does so much and, and uh, gets things started. Do you anticipate there'll be any change as far as visitation or policy or COVID-19 restrictions until we start seeing that vaccine rolled out? I would be surprised. Um, you know, visitors are not the source of, of the uh, virus getting into homes, but regardless, uh, the, the restrictions are, are severe. And so people have, have been waiting a very long time. 
Uh, unfortunately, they're probably probably going to have to wait another four to six to maybe eight weeks before they can you know visit in a more unrestricted fashion. But of course, that will be up to uh, Dr. Henry and her team to assess whether that uh, when that will be safe. But um, you know, maybe by February uh, or into early March, we we will see those restrictions come down. And when we say that, or when we say that visitors are not the source of the virus coming into the the long term care facilities, that leaves it to workers. That I'm not saying they're doing it on purpose, but that is where we're seeing the virus come in. Do you anticipate there will be a directive that workers have to get this vaccine to continue working in long term care? Well, it used to be that if you worked in uh, healthcare, you had to have the flu vaccine or wear a mask. Uh, that requirement was fought by the BC Nurses Union, and and it was um, uh, taken away by the current uh, provincial government. Uh, so I doubt if there will be a mandatory vaccination. But uh, in my view, and certainly in the view of, of, of families that have their loved ones in care, if you're working uh, with vulnerable seniors, unless you have a medical reason not to be vaccinated, uh, it seems like it, it, it's common sense that you should be vaccinated. Could there be a difference, do you think, then, in a publicly run long-term care facility and a privately run one? Well, the regulations uh, for any uh, long-term care home that is that receives some public funding is the same. Uh, private care, uh, which is a, represents a very small uh, portion of long-term care in BC, is is different. So the vast majority of care is uh, publicly funded and and subject to the same regulations, the same orders, uh, and so I, I think we'll see the same approach uh, everywhere. All right, uh, Terry Lake, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for your time, as always. Thanks you for having me on, Jill, and for uh, shining a spotlight on uh, you know the. The, the vulnerable seniors and, and the wonderful people who look after them. All right. That is Terry Lake. He is the CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. As you know, the border between the United States and Canada remains closed to all but essential travelers. Some people are calling for even stricter restrictions at the border. And there are some concerns that uh, particularly during the holidays, people might, might try to get around those rules. So we wanted to check in once again with Len Saunders, who is an immigration lawyer based in Blaine, Washington. Len so great to have you back. Thanks for so much for being here. Thanks, Jill. Nice to be on your show again. I wanted to get your take. What do you think about the idea some people are calling for even tougher restrictions at the border? Well, I don't think it's going to help because, you know, you can't restrict the border 100%. As of right now, from what I've been told, traffic has dropped by about 97%. So there's only a very small percentage of people crossing over the border whether it's going north or south. So I don't know, you know, are they going to completely shut off the border? It's almost impossible to restrict it 100%. And do you think there's going to be a push or people will still try and gather and in doing so try and get around the rules for the holidays? Well, absolutely. A great example is um, a friend of mine from up in Canada contacted me yesterday about traveling to Hawaii for the holidays, wanted to talk about the whole being tested for COVID and what the restrictions were on flying. So I think a lot of Canadians, especially as the weather gets colder, will definitely look at coming south, whether it's into into the U.S. or Mexico, for the holidays. And the Canadian government cannot prevent Canadians from leaving the country. They can prevent people from entering, but they can't restrict it by 100%. So I think this is going to be an ongoing issue for the Canadian government on trying to control the pandemic with the border closure. Right, but they can't stop Canadians from coming back, can they? They can just uh, bring in, enforce the rule of quarantine. Well, exactly, and I'm a great example. I'm dual. I grew up in Vancouver. I'm Canadian. I could, right now, drive into Canada. What's preventing me going north is the quarantine, but a lot of people are willing to do that. It's interesting when you mention that, too, because we've been talking about Hawaii and uh, the idea of the rapid test or the testing uh, for COVID that Hawaii is saying that they'll waive uh, the quarantine rules in that state. But like you said, you'd still have to quarantine when you come back. Uh, I have friends that are in Mexico right now. They have a house in Mexico. They're there for a few months. Uh, They're willing to quarantine when they come back. Uh, I I agree with you. I think we're going to see more and more examples of that. 
Oh, and I'm getting those calls every day, people wanting to know whether they can still travel to the U.S., you know, Americans wanting to go north under these family exemptions. So people are finding ways around the border closure. It's not vast numbers, but it's, you know, it's enough, obviously, to make the Canadian government concerned. And it's, it's, an on, it's like the Peace Arch Park. They can't control Canadians entering the park. And so I think the Canadian government, their hands are tied somewhat on trying to limit this border traffic to zero. They can't. Uh, is it technically, I mean, I guess we've been saying too, if you're, if you're looking for a loophole, the chances are you're not really, you, you might be still following the letter of the law. You might not be following the, the nature or the, the, what the law is meant to do. Uh, because I've heard of people too having somebody drive their motor home to the border and fly, say, flying to Bellingham or flying to Seattle and then uh, continuing on their trip rather than uh, because they can't drive a motor home across the border. Uh, I mean, something like that. Is that being discouraged? Because it's it sounds like it's technically not against the law. It's interesting because it's not illegal. I haven't seen the Canadian government discourage it other than put, you know, on websites, travel advisories. There's some people making good money right now, you know, facilitating Canadians entering the snowbirders into this country with their vehicles, either driving them over. I've heard San Juan Airlines, which has these flights going from Abbotsford and Bandrew Bay to Bellingham, they're sold out. They're packed. So a lot of Canadians are not taking the warning seriously, and they're still entering this country. Does it make sense that while the border is closed to all but essential traffic, it's still so easy to fly back and forth? It's ridiculous. The the whole closure is ridiculous because there's all of these loopholes, whether you're meeting people at the park, whether you're flying into the U.S., there's all of these loopholes. Now, not everybody's taking them, but enough people are, are taking advantage of these opportunities that I would be concerned if I was the Canadian government, because definitely some of these people, when they return to Canada, may be infected. Right. And, and that's, again, why the, the quarantine rules are there. But you also, if somebody's willing uh, to go around the rules uh, to that extent, uh, you do wonder, even with the phone calls and the follow-ups, uh, they're probably not going to get everybody. And there might be the person who thinks, oh, I'll just go to the grocery store. What's the big deal? Oh, absolutely. I agree. And, you know, once you drive you know, back into Canada, so if you are fortunate to bring your RV over and maybe go down to the south for a month or two, Let's say you're from the interior. You still have to drive through half of British Columbia to get home. You're stopping at gas stations and restaurants. So there's definitely the possibility of the pandemic continuing through all of this cross-border traffic. And in the the meantime, while all of this is happening, uh, there hasn't been any change, has there, as far as Point Roberts? Point Roberts, they still have not made any exemptions for it. Um, I know Brian Calder, who is the president of the Chamber of Commerce there, is just beside himself. He's seen all the businesses closed pretty much. There's very few open. He's seen a lot of the residents relocate either to my side of Whatcom County, into Blaine or Bellingham, or dual citizens go back to Canada. It's getting worse and worse. I think finally when the border reopens, there's going to be nothing left in Port Roberts. It's going to be just a ghost town. Uh, well, well and, and I guess, uh, too, I mean, if the businesses are all closing, last time we talked, uh, you had said the, the one grocery store there was even a bit of a ghost town. Uh, you can't blame people for not wanting uh, to say, stay and be stuck there. It's funny because some people actually like it. When people call from Port Roberts, I ask them how prison is over there and they laugh. <laughs> some people like it. Most people, they're very frustrated. There's no services. They They literally can't do anything. There's nothing to do. So, you know, I think there's a lot of frustration over there, and it's going to make a lot of people think second about whether they want to live there you know, in the future if this ever happens again. Well, I guess, yeah, on the flip side, if you like that kind of isolation, it's probably the safest place to be. Absolutely. I've heard people, they walk down the middle of the street and there's no cars driving around. It's just quiet. <laughs> uh, do you have any idea then uh, at this point uh, with the, the vaccine on the horizon with that positive news, uh, do we have any idea on when we might see uh, rather than toughening up of the restrictions at the border, uh, some kind of loosening of the restrictions? I think on the one year anniversary of the closure on March the 20th, this coming spring, I think there's going to be a big push to have some sort of opening. By that time, there's going to be, um, you know, 
a lot of people are going to be vaccinated. Hopefully the numbers are going to start going down. And I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on the Canadian government after a year for people to say, we need to move on here. We need to open back up again. But that's still another three or four months away. Yeah, it's still, which which doesn't seem like a long time, but certainly when we've been dealing with this for so so long already. Uh, Len, you mentioned the park, and I know that's a place where, where you meet people and that. What's happening there now? Are you still seeing weddings and such? Oh, absolutely. You know, it's obviously a little quieter because of the weather, but what's interesting is the RCMP are being more enforcement orientated. So a lot of individuals, when they enter the park from Canada, the RCMP, they're, they're not so much in them, but they're making sure that they're not bringing back any gifts or contraband. They're making sure that they have BC driver's licenses so that, you know, they're, they're residents of the lower mainland. Um, but, you know, before I would maybe see one RCMP officer, you know, checking the odd person on weekends, you'll see at least a half a dozen officers and there'll be, you know, a single file line now going back over the ditch onto Zero Avenue and they're checking every person, which I think is smart because if you're not checking people, who knows who's going north? They may be some American who's trying to contravene the, you know, the border closure and sneak into Canada. So I think the RCMP is actually doing a good job monitoring the park these days. And is it still the, the park, kind of the area that's adjacent? Because remember when, when we were seeing all of the weddings and the, the tents and people in the main park, it was shut down on this side. So people have kind of, from what I understand, kind of gotten around that. Well, so what's happening now is because the B.C. government closed the Canadian side, instead of having 40 acres, you have 20. So it's all on the American side. But the the park ranger, Ranger Rick, who I know has had a lot of publicity because he's trying to do a good job social distancing and keeping people, you know, you know, behave there. All the tents are on one side of the park and the picnic tables are on another and it's it's actually very well organized, but it's definitely busy on weekends. It's hard to find a parking spot on the American side. Interesting, uh, interesting stuff. Uh, Len, we'll leave it there for today. Always good to check in with you. Thanks so much for doing that. Thanks, Jill. Talk to you soon. Sounds good. That is Len Saunders, immigration lawyer. He is based in Blaine, Washington. Well, yesterday there was a lot of talk about a new whale species spotted off the coast of Mexico. Today it is the release from the International Union for Conservation of Nature, the red list of threatened species, updating the status of 422 shark, ray and ghost shark species. And one of those has a very interesting name and a very interesting story. Joining me to talk more about this is Simon Fraser University Professor Nick Dolvey on the line. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I wanted to talk to you about this. I saw this article put out by SFU about the barn door skate, which I must say, when people, I think, see that or read that, they're thinking about a an activity in the wintertime on a farm. But we're actually talking about an example of bringing this species back from the brink of extinction. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I can indeed. You know, it's a very aptly named uh, animal. It's uh, actually a flat shark that lives on the seabed with very large wings. And uh, it grows to a size of about 160, 170 centimeters long. So it's nearly as long as a human being is tall. And the story with this animal is that it uh, is found all the way from Cape Hatteras in the USA, all the way up to Newfoundland, Canada, including Gulf of St. Lawrence on the Grand Banks. And uh, it used to live right up to the shoreline, um, uh, right down quite deep, we think to about 800 meters deep. And the backstory is that, um, you know, we've all heard the plight of the Atlantic cod. Well, a lot of those fisheries would have been taking barn door skate as collateral damage of targeting cod. And, you know, with large overseas fleets fishing in waters in the 60s and 70s, it caused a very steep decline, not only of cod, but also of barn door skates. And and where are we now then, as far as uh, this certainly isn't the only uh, shark or ray species uh, that's declining? Why is it, do you think, that we're seeing uh, this decline right around the world? Well, um, you know, since the 1950s, there's been a quest to catch more fish and, 
you know, policymakers uh, decided that putting more boats on the water will help us catch more fish. And that's what the statistics were telling us in the 60s and 70s. But by the 70s, we started to realize that there were far too many boats on the water. And uh, we started to see the consequences of that in the 70s and 80s and 90s with the collapse of many fish stocks, including uh, a number of shark and ray populations, including the barn door skate. And so we think that the barn door skate underwent a decline of nearly 99% by the late 1970s and was virtually absent from uh, Canadian and US waters. And it only just started recovering very soon after the moratorium on fishing for cod in the early 1990s. So we think, you know, the reduction general trawl fishing effort along the shelf has probably helped the species recover. But also the U.S. took pretty strong action. They uh, prohibited the capture and landing of the barn door skate. And Canada closed... Um, a fishery that was targeting the capture of skates on the Scotian shelf in the early 2000s. And although we don't really fully understand the reasons for recovery, and there are other skates that have not recovered very well, um, you know, we have seen a spectacular recovery of the barn door skate. It's now recovered back to its mid 1960s levels. Hmm, which is great news. And and what uh, role do uh, skates play as far as uh, their importance when it comes to the bigger picture of, of ocean health and, and biodiversity? That's right. Well, many organisms play a very important role in their ecosystem, uh, mainly by being predators in their ecosystems. Uh, we're obviously very familiar with a lot of the top predators, the sharks, but also you know, some of the skates are very big foragers of um, shellfish and crustaceans on the shell seas. And so they're out there um, keeping the overabundance of things in check and competing with other species and fulfilling their role in the ecosystem. But more importantly, you know, there are canary in the coal mine. You know, sharks and rays are some of the first species to disappear because they're so sensitive to fishing. So hopefully this is a sign that we're starting to get things right in our fisheries management. And looking at um, the the International Union for Conservation of Nature and uh, SFU has put out uh, that uh, talking about the red list of threatened species uh, has updated uh, the status uh, of many of these species. Do you think we are doing enough then as far as recognizing their importance and trying to either bring them back or, or save them now or does more need to be done? Um, from my perspective, uh, I think a lot more needs to be done. You know, we've been going around the world trying to assess the status of all of the sharks and rays and ghost sharks. And there's about 1,200 species. And uh, 422 assessments were revised and came out today. And in that list, it includes um, a species called the lost shark, which was only described by taxonomists last year, but we think is now critically endangered, possibly extinct, and so this is one of the first examples that of a marine fish that has been driven to near extinction by overfishing. Hmm. And and what are your thoughts then when you talk about the, the barn door skate? And again, my guess is there are people who probably have never heard of this before and now trying to picture it, like you said, it can go uh, to be 160 to 170 centimeters long. Uh, is is this a success story in, in what we've seen with this particular species? It is. Um, and... There are other success stories. This is definitely a spectacular recovery, but you know, we've spent, particularly in Canada, USA, South Africa, Australia, and Europe, we've put a lot of effort into figuring out the status of sharks and rays and trying to manage them sustainably. And there are many sustainably managed and fished populations around the world. And the challenge has been to figure out, you know, can we bring species back from the brink of extinction? And to allow them to fulfill their role in the ecosystem again. And this is just another uh, bright spot of hope that tells us that you know, if we do apply fisheries management and conservation measures to these sharks and rays, then we can save them. 
All right. Well, it's a very interesting, uh, interesting news coming out of this. Uh, we'll leave it there for today. Uh, Professor Nick Dolvey, thank you so much for joining us and talking more about this. Thank you. That is Professor Nick Dolvey with Simon Fraser University. Well, we always like to try and bring a feel-good story to the program. One or two is a nice break from all the more serious stories. Although yesterday, having the vaccine rollout, I know, offered a lot of people some hope and looking at that light that Dr. Bonnie Henry was talking about as we navigate this pandemic. Here's something that deserves a little bit of attention because in a year where many, many families are struggling financially with this pandemic, it turns out out that one of the cities in this province has been named the most generous city in Canada. And our show contributor, John Jang, has more on that. Hey, good afternoon, Jill. As you know, we Canadians pride ourselves for our well-earned reputation of being friendly, polite, and nice. But as you probably also know, we love our bragging rights, especially if we can hold it over our eastern neighbours, you know, the ones living in Toronto. Now today, I'm very happy to share that we've got some bragging rights here on the West Coast. Our province's capital city of Victoria has just been named the most generous city in Canada for 2020 by GoFundMe.com. And joining me right now to talk more on that is the regional manager for GoFundMe here in Canada. That is Caitlin Stanley. Caitlin, uh, before we get a look into what made Victoria so special this year, do we know exactly how much Canadians were able to donate this year across the country? You know, unfortunately, we can't quite get into that level of detail, but uh, the way that we, you know, decided that Victoria earned this top spot this year is that the data is based on the number of donations per capita for cities with a population greater than 100,000. And to give you a little bit of a sense of how big that number could get is that, you know, since GoFundMe has been in Canada uh, since 2010, the folks have raised over half a billion dollars, and we're at about one in seven Canadians haven't given to the GoFundMe platform. So uh, it's an incredible amount of generosity, and especially in a year where uh, we really need it most. I think you hit the nail right on the head because it's been such a challenging year, as we know. So uh, let's get into this. Uh, are there specific reasons why Victoria emerged as the most generous city in Canada this year, or could it just come down to a bit of luck? You know, I think it's always varies from city to city. And, you know, what we see on GoFundMe is so much of our fundraisers and our causes are really local based. And I think it just speaks to the local pride and the generosity and the familial um, love within your community. You know, we've seen fundraisers started for larger causes, say, to protect Indigenous lands in Victoria to small stories where a resident has been hurt or is in an urgent situation and, you know, they see tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands donated to help them recover. Um, and of course, in a time during COVID-19, we've seen tons of, tons of fundraisers started in Victoria uh, to save businesses, to help individuals, because uh, right now, you know, we're, we're all in a little bit of need. Well, I think it's a great reminder that we're all in this together. And the whole point of GoFundMe is to just do what's right. And even if you don't know these people that you're donating to, if they're a complete stranger to you, you at least read why they're under these particular circumstances. And if you're in a position to help somebody out, you do it because that's the right thing to do. And it's what Canadians do. So I love that the people at Victoria have just understood that and have embraced it fully over the past year. Uh, I know specifically there's a couple of campaigns we need to mention, one regarding an animal farm and another regarding a marathon to support single parents. So uh, give us a breakdown of some of these campaigns. So to speak to the farm one, we saw that started in about early April as a response to the shutdowns for the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, this is a really beautiful story, and I know we all love a little, um, a little animal story, but we saw about 90,000 raised for the Beacon Hill Children's Farm, which is this local family farm in Victoria. And I think what's really profound is while it might be small in size, I think it's pretty, uh, has had a really large impact and that just shows volumes and how much was raised and to help protect these animals and continue to feed them because, you know, we've all been a product of the impact of COVID-19 and sanctuaries, nonprofits uh, have really seen the, the brunt of it. So that's been really fun to see. And as we've moved into the holidays, we see a lot of people fundraising for nonprofits and to speak to my point just prior is that we're really seeing 
uh, revenue streams for these nonprofits really get cut during this time. And what's great is people people are recognizing that need. Uh, there's a pair of runners uh, who are starting, I believe, in uh, Port Hardy and headed to Victoria. I think they're trying to run 500 kilometers, which I don't know about you, but that's a lot more than I could take on. Um, also raise money for an organization that's close to their heart, which is a single parent organization out in Victoria. So across the board, whether it's a response to the racial injustice movement to uh, someone local and a neighbor that might need your help. Uh, we've seen every type of fundraiser across the board. Oh, that's just beautiful. I mean, 500 kilometers. Uh, I've ran 42 and it took me almost an entire day, like just under six hours. So I can't imagine 500 kilometers. It's a great cause, though. And I love seeing that people are getting uh, so creative when it comes to coming up with these campaigns to try and raise awareness and let people know that, hey, this is happening. This is what I'm willing to do if you can chip in even $5. So again, that's the power and beauty of GoFundMe. Now, I got to ask you, does it surprise you a little bit that uh, Canadians were able to generously donate so much this year? Because we know a lot of families this year are struggling financially as a result of the global pandemic. Totally. And that's that's a really great question. I think what's different about this year and what really we've seen at GoFundMe is that there's a steeper and broader sense of empathy. I mean, we've never been in this crisis where every single person has been impacted. And people have this drive and this um, will to turn empathy into an action. And you see it, whether it's this donation or starting their, their fundraiser for themselves. Um, and it helps us feel a bit more connected. You know, a, a lot of our activities are virtual this day and, and being able to connect on a GoFundMe or, you know, through the 10 years, we've seen 65 million comments on our platform. And that's, that's a really important piece of the puzzle is not just helping someone with a dollar, but being able to actually show your support. And, you know, 70% of our donations are under $50. We're really a platform that um, has a lot of people micro-giving. So we really believe that when a lot of people give a little, it can make a huge impact. And that's what we're seeing is um, just people lending a hand, giving a little, sharing uh, their words of encouragement, and it's, it's going a really long way. Couldn't have said it any better myself. That is Caitlin Stanley, the regional manager for GoFundMe here in Canada. Caitlin Thank you so much for giving us some time here today and explaining just how Victoria became the most generous city in Canada for 2020. Thank you so much for your time. Have a good one. And thanks to our show contributor, John Jang.